Hello friends, uh, back from a nice weekend back in my hometown of Seward, Nebraska, homecoming and a 55th high school reunion. And it's amazing how time passes. Well, this is a continuation of our series on James. It's really the fifth part, and today I'll be dealing with James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And I've titled this message, When Hard Times Come. Now, life is hard. I mean, does anyone want to argue with that? In a recent uh, men's Bible study, uh, our leader asked us to list the areas where we felt God might be testing us. And right off the bat, someone mentioned health. Either we struggle or our loved ones were struggling with sickness. And then somebody mentioned problems on the job. And, you know, some heads nodded. And then we talked about stress related to family. And uh, the leader asked if the challenges ended when kids were actually out of the house. And we all said, no, not really. The problems changed, but once a parent, always a parent. Then one of the men mentioned betrayal. And it kind of got solemn, quiet in the class when we heard that word because We've all had friends who've let us down in one way or another. And in some cases, we've actually had people just bail out on us. And when he mentioned money as a cause of potential problems, he kind of smiled and said, some people have too much money. And somebody said, I doubt if any of us have that issue. And we all kind of laugh. But money or the lack of it tends to be the number one cause of marital discord and probably problems with friends as well. Well, someone spoke up to say that God fits the trial to the person so that what happens to me can't be compared with what happens to you. Our struggles are not all the same because we uh, have a wise Heavenly Father who fits the trial to the person. And James uh, would agree with that sentiment. In a sense, his whole letter is about how to respond properly when we're under pressure. He's already reminded us that trials are a necessary part of our spiritual growth. That was in James 1, 2 to 4. That there's a blessing reserved for those who respond rightly. That's James 1, verse 12. And we're also told not to blame God when difficult times come. And that was last week in James 1, verses 13 to 15. And now here in these verses today, 16, 17, and 18, he advances the argument by reminding us that God is good all the time, even during our hardest trials. Now we can say it this way, God is not on trial during our trials. We are. He uses hard times to put our faith to the test, and this passage shows us three things we need to remember if we're going to pass the test with flying colors. Now, number one is just to remember God's love. He says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. See, when hard times come, it's pretty easy to blame God for our problems. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden, we're pretty much experts at passing the buck. You know, it's not my fault. I don't deserve this. You started it. The devil made me do it. I couldn't control myself. They had it in for me. The whole thing is rigged. It's just bad luck. Or if I were older or younger or richer or smarter or single or married or better educated or better connected, this wouldn't happen. But in the end, all excuses literally lead us back to God. He's the only one with whom we have to deal. He made us, gave us life, and one day uh, we'll give an account to him. And all of our excuses will be exposed as lies when we stand in the blighting line of his perfection. So don't be deceived into thinking you can blame God for the temptations you face. That's the first thing James wants us to see. He adds an important truth when he calls his readers my beloved brothers. And that's not just a term of affection. As a practical matter, James wouldn't have known all the Jewish Christians who were scattered in many places. It's not as if he's saying, I love you guys. No doubt that was true, but the phrase means much more than that. 
James is reminding his readers that they were greatly loved by God. They were brothers and sisters in Christ who had experienced the love of God in a deep way. He's really saying when you're tempted to give up, remember how much God loves you. One commentator put it this way, the peril of the unredeemed sinner is unbelief. The peril of the redeemed sinner is misbelief. See, we misbelieve when we forget what it caused God to save us. We misbelieve when we forget the pit from which we were rescued. We misbelieve when we accuse God of mistreating us. And there really is no cure for misbelief except replacing falsehood with the truth. But if we linger at the cross contemplating what Jesus did for us, we're not likely to be deceived when hard times come. So that's remember God's love. Here's number two. Remember God's goodness. Verse 17 said, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, the change in subject kind of seems abrupt, but the flow of thought is pretty clear. We must not blame God for our temptations, because evil desires lead to sin that leads to death. Twice James warns us not to blame God for our problems. When we sin, we have only ourselves to blame. Verse 17 kind of sets up a contrast. Everything good in this world ultimately comes from God. Well, if it's good, God made it, he gave it, or he sent it. The familiar words from the doxology say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I sometimes wonder if we really believe that. Not long ago, I asked a friend at Bible class how he was doing, and he laughed, and he said, I'm upright and taking nourishment. And I laughed, but do we realize that in him... That is, in God, we live and move and have our being. Do we really understand that we're alive right now because God wants us alive? We breathe because he gives us air to breathe and lungs to take it in. Now, if God withdrew his hand of blessing, not one of us would take another breath. We see and hear and move and think and laugh and clap and dream and cry, all because of God. I suppose we all know that, but rarely do we think of it. Rarely do we stop to give thanks for the blessing of life itself. Now, if you can hear my words, you must be alive. And if you're alive, it's a gift from God. And if God has given you the gift of life, have you been giving him thanks? We have to ponder Paul's question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Do you boast of your wealth or your fame or your talent or your accomplishments? Do you think your good looks owe you... Uh, oh, only to your DNA? I mean, who gave you your talent, your strength, your creativity, your ingenuity? Who gave you your blessings to take for granted? James emphasizes this when he says that every good gift comes down from the Father of life. As William Shakespeare reminded us that the quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven. Those famous lines from the Merchant of Venice are true in every way. Mercy always comes down. It starts with God and moves to man. It begins in heaven, ends on earth. And you don't bargain for mercy because you, to make a bargain, you've got to have something to offer. And we've really got nothing at all to offer God. Mercy is indeed like the gentle rain that softens the hard soil of a human heart. Now we need this because we are sinners worse than we know. Even the best Christian would have no hope of heaven without the shining mercy of God. If God didn't forgive and keep on forgiving, if he did not continue to pour out his mercy like the gentle rain from heaven, we'd be utterly and completely lost. So what kind of God do we serve? Well, he's completely good. 
He's constantly good. He's unchangeably good. I mean, God will never not be good. I mean, God could never be less than good. I mean, everything he does is good. Now, I'm sure you've all been in churches where they kind of do that call and response. It goes like this. The pastor says God is good. The congregation says all the time. And the pastor says all the time. And the congregation says God is good. Now, when I, I mentioned this one time in a sermon, someone told me that their church does that in a rather unique way. They say it in five parts, one for each finger on their right hand. kind of goes like this. In every situation, no matter what, God is good all the time. In every situation, no matter what, God is good. Now, you could hold up your right hand and say that right now, touching each finger in turn. God is good all the time. In every situation, no matter what, God is good. And once you do that, it kind of sticks in your mind. Now, when I mentioned the basic call and response in a sermon one time in Nigeria, one person told me later that in their churches, after saying God is good all the time and all the time God is good, the congregation would shout out in unison, and I am a witness. You know, that really is good because it brings the truth home. It's one thing to say God is good, almost like a theological cheer for the home team. It's even better if you think about those other statements in every situation and no matter what, but... Best of all <coughs> is to make it personal by saying, and I'm a witness. <coughs> now, it's hard to say, even when we think we know what will happen tomorrow, <coughs> you know, life can turn on a dime. I mean, no one knows what a day may bring forth, and that's a solemn fact. Life is not just one thing. It's good and bad, it's sickness and health, it's weeping and rejoicing, it's life and death and war and peace all mixed up together. That's why we need a God in whom there is no shadow of turning. I mean, he is the still point in our changing world. He is not good today and bad tomorrow. He does not capriciously change his mind, decided to be kind today and harsh tomorrow. Now, we're like that. God is not. When you're tempted to give up, remember the goodness of God. When you feel like giving in to temptation, remember the goodness of God. When you want to just give up on life, remember the goodness of God. Well, our third point is to remember God's grace. Verse 18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As James thinks about the goodness of God, he naturally turns to an illustration his readers would understand. The phrase, brought us forth, translates a Greek word that means to give birth. Now, what do we know about this divine birth? Well, for one thing, we know it starts with God. The text says God saved us of his own will. Now, whatever else we can say about our free will, let's be clear on one key point. Salvation doesn't start with us. It starts with God. I'm reminded of a a new convert at Angola Prison who spoke with a great deal of joy sharing his testimony of how Jesus saved him. The pastor that fellowship was visiting that night asked kind of an interesting question. He said, my brother, what you shared was wonderful, but you didn't say anything about your part in salvation. And the new convert replied, my part in salvation was to run away from the Lord as fast as I could. God's part was to chase me until he found me and saved me by his grace. And before I could wonder why the inmate pastor asked him that question, the pastor said, you know, brother, that's the answer I was looking for. Now, James would agree with that answer. Salvation is of the Lord. We, we sometimes say, I found the Lord, but, you know, <laughs> but he's never been lost. If the Lord didn't find us, we'd never find him on our own. 
The second thing to remember here is that it produces new life. And why do we need a new one? Well, the answer is simple. We need a new life because the old one that we were born with is filled with sin and disobedience. As James says in verses 14 and 15, lust leads to sin and sin leads to death. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. Now, the new birth is not an option if you wish to go to heaven. I mean, even the best among us needs to be born again. It's a gift of God given by grace and received by faith. And that's why we preach the word. Now, it's not our words that bring life. I, I mean, I can talk until I'm blue in the face, but my words can never give life. I mean, after all, my words are human words. They have all the limitations that go with my flesh. My words may amuse you or comfort you or <clears throat> anger you or embitter you. They may instruct or they may challenge, but in, my words in and of themselves have no power to give life. Only God can give life. But you know something, the word of God is different. Because it comes from God, it has ultimate authority. Because it's true, it's 100% reliable. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that God's word is alive and active. It's a sword that lays bare the heart's hidden secrets. You know, when we preach God's word and the power of the spirit, it penetrates the heart. It reveals sin and, and excuses and shows us our need and then leads us to the cross of Christ where we can be forgiven. And third, it utterly transforms us. The Jewish readers in the first century were familiar with the concept of first fruits. I mean, each year the early part of the harvest was set aside for the Lord as a testimony that the whole harvest belonged to God. To call us first fruits means that we are assigned to the world that a great harvest is underway. God intends to use us to display his grace to the entire world. We're to be exhibit A of what God can do in through fallible, broken people. You might say our job is to be fallible and broken. Now, we've got that part nailed. God's job is to show his grace through people like us. And he's working on that day and night. That puts our trials in a new perspective. Recently, I came across this quote on Facebook. When it is all finished, you will discover it was never random. Now, if your life seems kind of random now, you may be sure that it is not all finished. We are never really finished in this life because God always has more work to do in us. Now, as we come to the end of this message, let's wrap up by reminding ourselves of some truth we've heard before. First of all, it's not about me. It's about God. And it's not about now. It's about eternity. Very often, the here and now won't make much sense to us. I mean, I have no magic formula to give you that will dispel your fears or clear away your confusion or wipe away tears. We're reminded over and over that into each life some rain must fall. Sometimes it sprinkles. Sometimes it pours. Sometimes floodwaters threaten to overwhelm us. Said another way, if you ever get to the place where all your questions are answered, all your problems are gone and all your trials have vanished, sit back and relax. You've made it to heaven. But between now and then, there are those dangers, toils, and snares that we sing about. I mean, no one is exempt from the troubles of this life. But the grace that has taken us this far will safely lead us home to God. Someone going through a tough time posted this on Facebook. They wrote, hope is tough. You can't really have halfway hope. Either you hope for something or you don't. And then they added this insight. Our God is good and faithful and gracious, and he loves to show those attributes to us if we pay enough attention to catch them. 
We have been trying to pay attention to those attributes to hope more in what is unseen than what is seen. And I thought, what a beautiful way to put it. And I'm glad our hope doesn't depend on the fickle way of circumstances, but on that solid rock called God. That's what James is talking about in this passage. When hard times come, remember God's love. Remember God's goodness and remember God's grace. A good memory of the right things will keep you strong when hard times come. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.